Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I'm Tom White, one of the directors at Global Council. Um, Welcome to our podcast today, looking at one of the major events of the last uh, month in Brussels, which has been the launch of the Conference on the Future of Europe. Um, It's the first major assessment of the EU's powers and institutional uh, relationships in two decades. Um, And I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, uh, Martin Lemstra, one of our researchers who joined from the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, as well as Sofia Rusak from uh, CEPS, the Centre for European Policy Studies, who is, um, in my view, the preeminent authority on the Conference on the Future of Europe, having been one of the first commentators and analysts in Brussels to really take it seriously as a phenomenon, and who has been leading a number of discussions um, about what its purpose, um, what its challenges, and what its ultimate outcomes might be. Um, I'd like us to kick off with a um, bit of an introduction from each of us about why we think it it matters. Um, From my perspective, I think it's very important in that we don't do this very often in in Brussels. We don't often find enough momentum and enough reasons to reassess um, the institutional power balance. And clearly, there have been challenges over the last 10 years in the EU's ability to address questions around financial stability, around public debt, um, or even more recently, around coordinating responses to the pandemic, um, because some of those institutional structures were sometimes hampering political decision making. So um, it's always interesting when we are able to get these kinds of debates opening. And I think that it's also being approached in a much more um, open way than perhaps previous uh, treaty change negotiations in that it's actually not being presented as a negotiation. It is it is very much a dialogue, um, albeit one with a um, probably a, an end game that will look a lot more like a political negotiation. Um, but um, Sophia, why don't you um, tell us why, why you think this matters? Thanks, Tom. Thanks for this uh, very kind introduction and thanks for inviting me to speak about this topic. Indeed, I'm quite passionate about it and and, and try to, to follow it very closely. You know, I, I find it, um, I find this is, um, so let's say the conference should improve the way that um, the EU works, but so far it basically only had has exemplified, you know, what's going wrong. And I think this is from, you know, from a research perspective, why it is very interesting to, to see what's happening at the moment. It has so far demonstrated, you know, turf battles between the institutions. It is what we've all seen, you know, in the in the first half, in the first year when it was all about um, who's going to lead the conference, um, and you know, it also um, it also uh, it also continued next uh, last week, uh, as we've seen that you know even the start of the conference has always been uh, postponed over disagreement of of the question like who's actually taking decisions in the end. Anyhow, so you see a lot of fundamental uh, disagreement, a disagreement, and I think. Um, 
this really boils down and kind of showcases and kind of lays bare, let's say, the question and the deep disagreement of what should the EU be, you know, and, and how who should lead it. And that is something that has, uh, yeah, that has, has, has been an issue throughout the, the history of European integration. And it has mainly been a conflict between the supranational institutions, so the Commission and the, and the, um, the Parliament and the member states. Um, but also really within the member states, because there's also many divided lines there. And um, yeah, traditionally disagreement on how the EU should look like. So this is really, um, yeah, a, 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 the crucial, the pivotal question here. And if we look at, you know, the two camps and then we see that the, 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 the um, parliament is super ambitious and it wants um, really deep change um, uh, on the way the EU functions through this conference. And member states on the other side, they want to keep the power to themselves, how the EU looks like. And uh, the thing is that um, member states are the ones that are in the driver's seat. Um, and that means any idea you know, um, about the future of the EU is only as good as member states are also willing to implement it. I think that's interesting what you said about member states and there's one member state in particular um, that, that has driven the attention on, on the conference being being France and of course we had uh, Macron's uh, speech um, on, on the weekend launching the, the conference. Um, Martin perhaps I could I could come to you if you introduce a bit why why you're focused on this um, uh, conference and maybe you can make sure we sort of bring us all up to speed on where we stand now in the process and what's actually happening. Sure, Tom. So this idea has been floating around for a long time now. Uh, initially, it was planned to start in 2020, but because of the pandemic, it has been postponed. Um, it's an opportunity to get citizen input, but on another level, it's also an opportunity uh, and contains a significant, significant element of inter-institutional negotiations. Uh, procedures are very important in Brussels, and, you, and that reflects in how long the, the different institutions took about agreeing about the exact procedures and the joint declaration, which was published uh, a while ago. So how is this conference organized? Well, it's chaired by von der Leyen, uh, by uh, President Sassoli of the European Parliament and by uh, Costa from uh, the Portuguese presidency. But the executive board where the practical decisions will lie is chaired again by Parliament, the Council and the Commission. This is important because this executive board will in the end uh, draw upon uh, the plenary and publish the conclusions uh, of the conference. So uh, it will consist of uh, both uh, an online platform where citizens will be able to discuss, organize events and, 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 and uh, exchange ideas. It will also consist out of randomly drawn citizens in uh, uh, so-called citizen panels, which must include at least one fourth of, of people below 25. So the inclusion of young people is also very important. And lastly, there is also a conference plenary where 433 participants, again, with representatives from European Parliament, from national parliaments, from the Council, from the Commission, uh, and uh, several stakeholders from civil society, uh, such as, for example, the Committee of Regions, the uh, Economic and uh, uh, Social Committee, um, will discuss vital topics. Topics to be discussed are, for example, health, uh, EU in the world, digital transformation, European democracy, migration, and, and many others. There is also one specific topic called other ideas, uh, and this has been flowing up on the online platform quite substantially again, because there are so many ideas which do not neatly fit into these uh, uh, topics uh, as discussed. 
Uh, and as, as briefly mentioned already, there was an opening on, on May 9th uh, with lots of speeches. Uh, Macron expectedly uh, going uh, overtime in a meandering speech about the European model and interestingly as well about why Strasbourg uh, is such an uh, important and vital part of uh, the European uh, institutions. And it was interesting because immediately afterwards there was already an idea on the on online platform saying um, Strasbourg should not be uh, no longer be the, the, the seat of the European Parliament, they should move back to Brussels. So already here you can see whenever a president now says something in a speech, he can be sure that there will be an idea on this online platform uh, stating the exact opposite. <laughs> of course. Well, um, I wonder whether that IP address might end up being um, in The Hague. Um, maybe, Sophia, I could pick up on what you said about um, the, the different camps, that there are those who are looking at this as an opportunity for more federalism, more integration, and and those that perhaps see it as, as more of a threat. I wonder, could you maybe break down for us a bit what is what is really at stake? Um, so Martin mentioned one of the points about the, um, you know, the, the the double seat of the European Parliament, but but what would you see as being the the underlying core questions for the conference? Yeah. So, you know, the conference is about two things. It's about policies and democracy. I mean, this is what they say. So policies, you know, as Martin already introduced, you know, there's these nine policy fields plus an open box where everybody can make suggestions. Um, and then there is democracy as in representative and participatory democracy. So this means um, the parliament is really strong on, uh, they, so they're making a case to improve representative democracy in a sense that some open questions are clarified as to who um, and how the next commission president will be elect, um, buzzword lead candidate procedure, um, transnational list. I mean, these are two things that are floating in the debate already for a long time. So we've all, we've all heard it um, many times. Um, and uh, well, as I said, the, 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 the parliament is, is super ambitious. And so they want really change. They want all these institution change. They want, um, yeah, these participatory paths also improved by citizens' engagements, although every institution says they want the citizens engaged. But, you know, I see a difference here because it's about the parliament that won. So the parliament is really... Uh, the parliament's baby, let's say, is really this, these, 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 these citizens' panels, you know, with randomly, with a number of randomly selected citizens. This is what they really pushed for. Um, so for them, it is important that um, that also citizens are involved that, you know, go beyond the usual suspects, which, you know, can be, should be ensured with this randomized selection. Um, so anyhow, so they want, you know, the preparation for the election, they want citizens uh, engaged. Uh, the, co the commission, they also speak about citizens' uh, uh, participation and they they um, they also implemented it by coming up with this platform, which really is kind of the, you know, the focal point of this institution. Um, and yes, that is a means of citizens to engage directly and, you know, much easier than we knew it from, uh, or that we know it from other instruments that they are, you know, uh, the European Citizens Initiative, for instance, and Citizens Dialogues. And, you know, there are several instruments that the Commission has come up um, in the past years. And I would say, you know, this platform is by far the easiest for citizens to, to, to uh, submit ideas and to get engaged. Um, but, you know, it, the thing is that, and I find it a bit typical for the Commission again, because um, they are praising this um, and they're treating this as, you know, the panacea uh, to, to solve all the all the problems it's, it's obviously not um because it the problem is that it's very easy to ignore what's ever been submitted to this platform you know like for my you know I, I still you know wonder how exactly the ideas that citizens submit you know and these reports of these events 
um, how they will kind of, you know, and what do they feed in and how do they, how are they processed and how much are they taking really serious? And I think it's a very, it's a, it's a typical way for the commission to initiate a direct participation, you know, like, please tell us what you think, but don't force us to really take into account what you think, you see. Um, so, and then, you know, we, we have the council and yeah, again, this is not a surprise that member states, you know, they, they, they traditionally want to keep the power to themselves and they traditionally, at, at least, you know, since the Treaty of of Lisbon and all the disaster uh, with with its ratification and you know um, the convention back then, um, they, this was really a taboo for a very long time to open the treaties. We have a few member states, Austria, for instance, it's an outlier. They are rallying for it already for a few years, and then you know Italy, Austria, France, France obviously with Macron is um, you know kind of uh, open for the conference and for 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 deeper change, but. You know, really, I see basically almost all other other member states on the other side. You know, especially in Eastern and Northern Europe, finding that um, it is um, it is really um, yeah, it, it is not to citizens to decide about treaty change. Um, it's Germany that kind of being a little bit in the middle, which is interesting because in their in their presidency, they um, yeah, they were let's say not very supportive, but they they're still not enthusiastic, but they're getting getting uh, they're getting there. Uh, well, yeah, so to wrap it up, I would say member states are, um, most of them, you know, ranging from skeptical to kind of outright um, opposed. And this is kind of, uh, you know, the little bit the, the institutional situation that we're that we're here. And let me just let me just say, I'm not surprised by either one of the institutions positions, because it's very much in line with how they usually also act. That's true. I mean, sorry, Martin, you're going to come in. I would, I would say here that uh, what, what Sophia flagged about uh, whether there will be follow-up is the key question surrounding the conflict of the future of Europe. Because we have had, we've seen in the past initiatives where uh, the EU institutions had grand claims um, but failed to follow up. It, it ended up in, in a drawer somewhere at the council. And, and, and that itself can, be, uh, can put off citizens to engage with exactly these kinds of exercises. So you risk um, by by now uh, engaging with the citizens but not following up, you, you risk achieving the exact opposite, that citizens do no, do no longer want to, to engage with this. But interestingly, it seems that the commission and other uh, ministers have also noticed that this is a key threat themselves. So at every occasion, the, the uh, von der Leyen has been keen to stress that they, are, they want to follow up, uh, this time uh, on, on the conference and, and, and Vice President Surika has said multiple times that there will be a feedback mechanism, uh, which will talk about uh, how ideas submitted will all actually uh, be taken up. Um, but as Sophia also mentioned, this does not do away um, by, with the, 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 the veto powers uh, and blocks which member states can impose uh, to prevent actual change from happening. Yeah, uh, if I can make, just say one more sentence on the feedback, because this is also something that sounds, again, very nice, but what does it mean concretely? You know, does it mean that citizens get an email when they submitted an idea and they get another email if somebody else commented on their idea? This is not a feedback mechanism to me, see? So also there we need to, we need to work a bit further. And one more example, you know, that you say that, Martin, and it's a very good point, 2018 European Citizens Consultation. You know, I'm not getting tired to mention this and to bring this back into people's uh, memories because this, we had a great attempt there of the commission, you know, with putting up a, a questionnaire, a methodologically sound, um, with drawn up by a citizens panel of representative, you know, selected uh, citizens and so on. Like, 
uh, making a big effort, uh, reaching out, 80,000 Europeans responded, 80,000, you know? So this is exactly what, like, how do you uh, involve people? Like, who do you make sure that people care? You know, this is also behind it. You know, you have to deliver, that's it, you, what you said, otherwise people get frustrated, but you also need to trigger interest. Um, and this is beyond the usual suspects. Absolutely. I mean, and if you think about um, the expectations that can be raised by having um, a citizens dialogue um, for this, where people are able to make their um, policy proposals around some very interesting topics that, that Martin ran us through, um, I, I think there will be some um, uh, consequences for the EU if they just have a conference and they have thousands and thousands of ideas coming through, but then there's no follow up. So I, I think maybe we want to come and have a look at what the next steps could be you know if it, if, if this conference does um, get momentum and traction as clearly um, President Macron is trying to to give it I mean if I think about the um, convention on the future of Europe that that I was involved with as a as a government official a long time ago um, that felt like more of a, um, a, a top-down exercise you know it had clearly been driven by the fact that the EU was about to um, enlarge itself from um, 15 member states to, to 25 with more in the pipeline. Um, you know, there was a real sort of sense of, I suppose, top-down political pressures for sorting out, you know, the, the voting rights, the institutional roles and, and, and the composition of the parliament. So there was a, um, a, a deadline and an external reason. Um, whereas when we look at this conference, I mean, there's no, there's no shortage of um, external reasons that mean you need to think about these questions. You know, we've just seen the EU agree um, an enormous increase in its financial firepower and the sharing of liabilities for um, public spending. You know, we've seen transformation in the relationship with the United States over the last few years with many in Europe now doubting how much they can rely on on the US as a as a partner for security and for maintaining multilateral bodies. Um, and of course, within the EU, we've seen enormous change with the departure of one of the largest member states in the UK. So you know, there are all sorts of reasons to, to stay, take a step back and have a have a debate. But I think they are perhaps lacking the sense of a, a real deadline or reason for, um, for, for for why decisions need to be taken and not just sort of kicked further down the road. Um, the reason I mention all of this is that there is one important deadline um, that will be uh, not lost on any of our listeners in, in France, which is that we have a, a presidential election um, next year in um, in France with President Macron having um, made a lot of his pitch to voters about France's role in Europe. Um, I'm just interested in, in your views on, on where, how might that impact on what the conference does and where its, um, where its conclusions go? Yeah, well, it had already its impact in the way that it's set up. And I mean, in the time frame, you know, that uh, it was supposed to, to last two years to give, you know, ample time to all the discussions that, uh, yeah, that are needed. And, you know, what happened due to Corona and interinstitutional uh, turf battles, we, um, we've been, you know, we've been cut down, the conference has been cut down by one year, uh, or cut into half, you know, let's say it like that. Um, 
Uh, and why is it not just, you know, still running two years? This is, of course, because of, you know, it's Macron's baby and it's French election time next year and it's French. Uh, it's going to be the French presidency. So Macron is very eager to, um, yeah, to, to keep it that way. And of course, he doesn't have a lot of opposing voices in the European Council because the others don't really care about it, you know, to start with. So um, this is this is the impact that it had so far. I mean, it's a good thing that, you know, that at least one of the European leaders is kind of, you know, very fond of this, of this exercise. But um, I really wonder how meaningful this is with, you know, half of the time that was initially planned. You know, if we only look at the work that the citizens um, panels do, you know, I mean, you do all this effort and you, you know, you bring together 800 people. So four panel, panels times 200 people, as, as Matt said, um, and then you let them discuss basically everything that the EU does, you know, I mean, nine plus topics on the webpage, you know, let's say, you know, another three is, 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 is going to be added, you know, what does it mean that every one of the panels then discusses three topics? Is it going to be climate change, migration, and uh, I don't know, EU foreign policy in seven days? You see, like this is, I mean, because this is what it is, it's going to be about seven days that these, that these citizens panels each have time to meet. So, I'm a little bit, um, you know, if I, it, it all looks very nice and uh, I'm happy that institutions agreed on this setup, but um, when it comes to timing, um, then I think things, yeah, it, it, it's all quite, um, quite short. And this is thanks to Macron. Um, and of course, if, maybe if we could look at the member state you know best in, in Germany, also facing an election in, in the autumn and, uh, and a new chancellor, um, how significant is the, is all of that? You know, are we going to see um, either uh, European the European agenda play a role in the German election, or could we see the German election have an impact on on this process? Mm. Well, uh, so to be honest, the, um, uh, the European debate or the debate around the EU disappeared, like vanished a few days after the presidency was over. Uh, and this is simply because then, you know, the election campaign started and no, uh, European politics does not play a big role so far in the election campaign. So it was really a clear shift uh, towards um, uh, towards national, as, as a very national focus again. Um, and, um, you know, it's funny because the, the Germans, yeah, as I said, they were not really ambitious. It was not a. It was not priority during that presidency, um, although you know Chancellor Merkel was was writing this non-paper with President Macron, uh, which I'm kind of curious how how he got her uh, convinced to do that, uh, because it doesn't really kind of you know. Um, seems to be in a core field of interest. Anyhow, um, she did. And then um, um, since then, you know, it, it had been picked up a little bit in the, with the Portuguese president. But the question is, um, so due to the election campaign, I would say um, this topic is, is really overshadowed. Um, so I don't expect, uh, or let's say we should not expect any German initiative um, on the EU scene uh, until the elections. What happens as of September, October, uh, well, it, it will probably take a few months to build a new government. So actually we're talking about next year. So basically you know, so until the end of the year, I think Germany is a little bit out of the, German, the European picture. Um, and uh, then what is the outlook? Well, I think there are quite high chances for a government that might be, you know, more enthusiastic about European politics as in a green, uh, or at least, you know, a greens are quite likely to be at least in the government and maybe even a green chancellor with, uh, uh, which is not so unlikely anymore, in, any, uh, actually. Um, but in any case, uh, to be honest, I'm not super convinced that, you know, the, the course of European politics is 
um, changing dramatically. One thing which is interesting to flag perhaps is that if you look at the European Parliament, uh, which uh, party there is most uh, uh, interested in pushing a, an integrationist agenda, it's the Liberals and the Greens. So uh, if you, for example, see the observer Daniel Freund, an MEP in this executive board, the, con the inter-party connection between him and a more prominent green position uh, in, in, in German government uh, could, to an extent, uh, be substantial. Also interesting because the Greens have in their manifesto to move to QMV on, on foreign policy issues, uh, qualified majority voting. Uh, and this is also something which is floating around uh, as, a, as a possible conclusion uh, for the conference of the future of Europe, at least to see to what extent uh, this can be expanded. So uh, if we could see a more uh, green dominated uh, German government because of the federal elections in spring, this could also be one of the things which, which comes uh, at least a bit closer to reality, I would say. Yeah, totally. No, you're right. But of course, you know, there is always a big difference between the parties on national ground and the parties that, you know, are from uh, are, are, uh, are put together or the, the, the sister parties, so to speak, here and on, on European level. And uh, Daniel Freund and his Greens colleague, green colleagues, uh, they are super ambitious and they bring up, you know, like very clear and very demanding ideas, which, which I find, you know, very interesting. Uh, but again, that, that it doesn't mean that the German Greens in Germany, you know, have the same line, although I think they have quite good ties. Um, and then again, second idea, so second thought is that as soon as a party is in the executive and in government, you know, then also quite a lot of things change. And the Greens, I mean, they, ha they have more and more government experience by now in Germany, for sure. I mean, um, uh, no doubt, but uh, still, um, you know, to, they have never been in the position that they're now, you know, inspiring, aspiring to be. So let's see what happens once once they reach there. And if we think about that spectrum that you outlined earlier, Sophia, between um, member states that are maybe kind of lukewarm or disinterested, and then at the other end, uh, very skeptical. Um, which which other member states should we be watching as to who is who's going to be mobilised? Of course, we and our listeners know that France and Germany are going to be important, but. Which, which other countries should be um, paid attention to? Yeah, so um, exactly. So, so, so Austria, I said already as an, as an outlier, which you know, like one of the driving forces of institution trade quite early on. Um, uh, and then also, yeah, France, France is no, um, uh, no surprise, as I said, Italy and Spain also. Then, you know, it's, it, I mean, the, the, um, the reluctant camp is clearly in the east of Europe, eastern and central of, of Europe, I would say, where they, you know, um, you know, either are, you know, opposed or let's say at best not interested and kind of have a sense of, okay, we're going to let our, you know, our people um, contribute to this in whatever form, but, you know, we as a government, we're not kind of, you know, really buying into this. Uh, also, yeah, as I said earlier, there's no way that citizens uh, are deciding on treaty change. And, you know, the northern states, they are, you know, um, quite similar, on a quite similar stance, I would say, than, um, than the Eastern European countries, also when, like, quite harsh on no treaty change, no institutional change, and very, very uh, policy fields, or, or let's say policy orientated, you know, any change that, that should come out of this, um, um, this, this, this conference should rather look at what the EU is doing and not how it is doing what it does. Um, and then, um, 
So you, you've seen the letter that, 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 um, that 12 member states um, have published, you know, a few weeks back. Um, and, you know, Poland and Hungary were not even included in that. Um, and there, you know, they kind of outlined their, their common approach towards the conference. And here they again state very clearly, really, that um, the conference should focus on concrete policy. Um, and that uh, even more so, not only on, on concrete uh, um, policy, but also on the council's strategic agenda. So, you know, basically already setting the frame in which citizens should discuss topics. And, and this uh, non-paper you mentioned, I think is very relevant. It has been uh, signed amongst others by Austria, the Netherlands, uh, Denmark, but uh, also Slovakia and Latvia. And, and one key line from this is that it should not create legal obligations or interfere with already established legislative processes. So here again, you can see the, these member states pushing back on the idea that uh, this conference, conference plenary conclusions uh, are somehow directly applicable. And second of, all, uh, second of all, the, the, what you mentioned about Eastern Europe, I think is very relevant because if we're looking at the next part of the year, when the ECDA is going to have a conclusion about the rule of law mechanism and probably the commission is going to apply this rule of law uh, mechanism, my guess is, my estimation is that we're going to see uh, uh, already tense relations with Hungary and Poland get even tenser, uh, even more so because uh, Hungary is heading towards an election year in, 20, in early uh, 2022. So uh, this undoubtedly will be a topic uh, discussed during the Conference of the Future of Europe, but it can also uh, uh, mean that any conclusion uh, in this field coming from these uh, member states uh, you know, they could use their veto if, if they don't like the conclusions uh, as they are presented to them. So this is exactly. something to keep in mind. Exactly, for any treaty change, we need unanimity. That is really important to always keep in mind. And any change needs to be implemented also by these governments. So either they veto it, it, it altogether or they don't implement on the, in their member state. So it's crucial to get them on board. So what I'm hearing is it, it sounds like there's a very narrow path to success where um, the conference needs to be focusing on uh, practical policies um, without duplicating or cutting across the normal legislative processes in uh, Brussels. Um, it needs to address some of the bigger inter-institutional questions without um, making treaty change the kind of central channel for delivering it um, and keeping the member states on board with a, with a process that they could veto um, further down the track. Um, and at the same time, it needs to be a process that engages and enthuses enough um, citizens or their sort of civil society representatives to have um, a lot of policy ideas generated and fed in through these panels and platforms. So there's a, um, a real job ahead um, for um, making sure it's got momentum and, and impact. Um, and of, of course, it also, it can't really fail um, completely because that would have huge consequences for, uh, for Macron and for the, the French presidency. So we have a lot of quite big um, uh, pressures to, to manage. Um, how do we see um, that happening? You know, if there was going to be a, um, a successful conference, which I would define as being a conference that has aired the big issues and settled at least some of them, um, you know, what are the what are the main sort of steps along the way that we should be looking out for 
and that our listeners should be looking out for um, ahead of that um, set of conclusions in the spring? You know, how will we know if if we're on track? I suppose. Well, I think a, a, a good. Um, I don't think there's a clear benchmark. What I think is a good indicator is I think uh, media coverage. Uh, I think this is something that uh, we all should kind of, you know, in our national home countries, have a look at and see how how things develop, because this is super important, of course, to, uh, yeah, to, to make it known outside the usual suspects and um, to read to 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 reach down citizens directly, you know, without and, and maybe even in, in, you know, also in those member states where the governments are currently not so much of a fan, because, you know, we know this not always the, co the government uh, and the, the, the people think the same way about the EU. So this is important that the media kind of, you know, um, uh, does its job. And uh, this is also, you know, for us to see in how far in how far this happens. And I mean, um, as I said, um, in Germany, this, this hasn't happened much yet. Um, I think uh, another thing that is also that is also important um, is to diverse uh, to to include diverse opinion to not only you know include uh, the same voices and the same pro-European voices. You know, we were talking about the platform earlier and looking at you know who contributed so far. My feeling is also that it's quite pro-European, which you know is beautiful. But then again, you know, it's not really a representative of of society. So it's important that also those will be included in all kinds of way that uh, have critical voices and even you know maybe you know anti-EU sentiment. Um, because then again, you can draw more attention. I think also because the debates will be more interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can can have more more um, more diverse debates. So I think these are um, uh, these are things um, that are important when it comes to things to look at. You know what are what is happening in the near future? Then we have the, the first plenary meeting. Um, I don't know yet so much what to expect from it. To be honest, it's probably a little bit like the inaugural event. You know, where everybody was was looking at, and in the end, you know, yeah, it's I mean, it, it's been a bunch of, <laughs> of political speeches and classical music. But um, let's see. Maybe maybe this is you know the next event where we where we also will will get. Um, um, get to know a little bit of because until now it's all rules you know and how are they put into practice you know how do things really pan out in reality and I think the first plenary meeting in June might be kind of a first uh, you know a first touch and feel. If I can point out one thing which I think will be crucial and again I agree uh, very much with Sophia it's rep representative um, and active participation and I think one thing which will be crucial for this is if member states will actively promote it amongst our citizens and, and actually get this conversation going. Because for example, what we saw with the European convention about the previous constitution, in the Netherlands, no one really paid attention to it. And therefore it did not really come as a big surprise to many that the Dutch voted against the conclusion. So what needs to happen is that also in member states, uh, which are perhaps not as uh, looking for grand sweeping uh, uh, change, that also these member states um, actively promote it, that it ensure that it's heard, because I think national parliamentarians have a very large role to play to activate people, to, to bring out uh, people to, to participate. And the fact that 108 uh, representatives of national parliaments are present in the conference plenary will hopefully be uh, a sign that this is something which uh, could get underway uh, as the conference progresses. Yeah. And one more thing on the member states promotion, by the way, I'm thinking even I'm wondering, like, why don't they take up this as, as a chance more which, as a chance 
to for treaty change because you know if we think back last time um, it was a convention made up of mainly parliamentarians and government representatives who decided something that then was rejected by the public. Now, you know, they have the chance to work on something that, I mean, it's not a draft for a treaty, of course, you know, but they have the chance to, to work towards um, uh, also a deeper change that will be uh, discussed with citizens beforehand. So then also the risk to have the same, you know, dramatic situation as we had last time in the ratification process are, are lower. I think in some ways this is going to be quite a big, exactly that question is going to be quite a political test for um, whichever um, individual or group decides to really run with the conclusions and try to make them happen, whether that is um, President von der Leyen or President Macron or, or a combination of, of them, um, to try and bring together the package so that it's sort of got enough for everyone to gain something. Um, and, and that's where I think your point about diversity of views is important right the way through. I mean, one of the main ways in which um, the Lisbon Treaty was actually sold in the in the ratification process was the fact that there was, of course, a lot of integrationist measures in there, but there was also the creation of the um, principles of subsidiarity and the introduction of a, um, a procedure for member states, parliaments to um, actually, you know, block or force a revision um, by, by the Commission through the yellow card procedure. And so I, I think if there's a sense of, um, yes, work out what else might need to be done at the European level, but also introduce some checks and balances so that we don't sort of further create a, a powerful remote elite, um, then you could see some of that coming together. I think the key challenge is just going to be, you know, which political leaders decide that it's worth doing that job um, and, and whether they can actually execute it. Um, obviously, we're at the start of this process and I'm hoping, um, Sophia, we, we can um, regroup um, a bit further down the track to review how progress is, is, is going. Um, but um, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been really fascinating to get your um, insights and perspectives. Um, is there anything in the immediate term we should be we should be looking out for in the in the processes? Is there a sort of a, a short-term next steps that you would like to draw attention to? Well, yeah, I think um, as I said in June, the the, the plenary, and then um, well in autumn, but it's not it's not um, the date is not set yet. The first the first citizens panels. I think these are the next two two interesting uh, things that will happen. And of course, the Slovenian presidency is soon of to get course. underway as well. So it was uh, Janza, for example, he already uh, was a bit uh, angry about the fact that he didn't also get an opportunity to, to give a speech uh, during the opening. So, uh, uh, and Janza is, of course, someone who is uh, uh, an interesting figure. So it will be also interesting to see how, how his uh, leadership uh, will uh, influence uh, the conference uh, as it goes on. Because, of course, uh, he, uh, the, the, the Slovene, they will have a significant position in the executive board uh, through their presidency. So it will be important to follow what they have to say in the coming months as well. True, yeah, good point. Absolutely. Thank you very much, um, Sophia. Thank you, Martin. And um, we'll um, re reconvene probably in, in, in the autumn. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, For Tom. more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.